The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. you today to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Many of you will recognize what I'm doing because I said I would do it last week. We are still pursuing the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 through 7. However, in coming to the exceptional statement of Jesus that there is to be no divorce except for sexual sin or adultery, we feel sort of a compulsion to say, well, there is another exception that the New Testament states. And if we deal with that text and just went forward in the Sermon on the Mount without bringing in that other, we feel kind of like both shoes haven't dropped. At least I feel that way. So I told you that I would step outside this week only for looking at the statement of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 which gives us another consideration to put alongside when God might give us a regulation of exception for divorce to occur. Listen to God's Word, 1 Corinthians 7, beginning at 10. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, not, not I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife. This is the Word of God. The English language is a complicated language, and you may know of some examples of times when there's a word in our language that the exact same word can come up with rather opposite meanings depending on how it's used. One of those words is the odd word to cleave, C-L-E-A-V-E. Probably you think, if you're like me, of the more popular and more common meaning of that verb, which is to split something apart, to break it in two, to sever it, as when a butcher uses his meat cleaver and divides a steak or a roast into smaller portions. So it's a dividing word. 
But interestingly and less common is the application. And by the way, check a dictionary. You'll find it has entries for both of these, one after the other. An Old English meaning, not so common anymore, except in the Old English of the marriage ceremony, to cleave, the same word, can mean to cause things to come together, to cling to someone, to strive for unity, bringing together, reconciling, not separating, the exact opposite it means. Well, that's an interesting thing to note as we proceed this morning. I first want to just give a fairly brief summation of things I said last time because this message is being preached because it is a companion piece, in a sense, to what the Sermon on the Mount and the words of Jesus say. And we saw last time in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, and 19, 3 through 9. Both times, the Son of God, the voice of God on earth, saying, God does not love divorce. God does not want marriage to be divided, but he says there should be no divorce except for marital unfaithfulness, sexual sin. That is an allowable basis, not a mandatory basis, but an allowable basis for a divorce to come in the words of Jesus himself. Now, Jesus certainly upheld the view of marriage that comes all the way from Genesis chapter 2. We authored, our session authored, and I was primary author, but the session adopted it and word-checked the whole thing, a document some of you saw. There happens to be a copy here beside me. If you didn't see the document, Biblical Foundations for Manhood and Womanhood that we authored a while ago, you can still get it. We'll see that there are some on the literature racks if they're not already there. We agonized over trying to state how we take a biblical stand in this day and age when these things are being derided and torn apart and attacked left and right. What is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? Well, we see that Scripture values marriage, giving it that designation of a one-flesh relationship which doesn't simply describe sexuality. It describes literally a new person being created out of two in a seamless unity that God has ordained and man ought not to disrupt. And from Genesis onward, God designs for a man and a woman to realize the wonders of what he has created in marriage. And he exalts that relationship and asks us to exalt it. So much so that in through the prophet Malachi, Malachi 2, the Lord said those strong words, I hate divorce. I hate breaking up of the marriage covenant. And yet, And I'll speak to this in a moment, but we see that God in his relationship with faithless Israel, when Israel rebelled as the bride of God, there came those places on more than one occasion in the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, where the Lord said, I give you a bill of divorcement because you have rebelled against me and hated my commandments and fled from me. And what we see there is that human sin often disrupts things that God designs, God's ideal, God's law and commandment and decree. And God regulates that rebellion, that disobedience from the thing that he loves and desires and sometimes even tolerates and regulates that which should not be breakable by allowing there to be 
this breaking up, even though it's never mandated. The logic of Jesus follows that pattern. It's a common pattern in biblical ethics. I remember several semesters I taught biblical ethics to students at Houghton College, and one of the things that used to uh, cause them to struggle was that they would find a command of God to do something and then find that it seemed God was contradicting himself. And take, for example, the, one of the commandments, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. It doesn't mean you shall not kill. It means you shall not murder. You shall not, with malice aforethought, take a sword and run somebody through. God's command is don't do that. That's forbidden. But students would raise their hand and say, well, hey, wait a minute. Don't we have places where God told Joshua to fight against and kill the Amalekites or some other enemy of Israel and say, wipe them out? Wipe them out. Kill them all. Don't we have Romans 13 where God said that the power of the sword is given to the state to defend the innocent and bring justice on some occasions? Don't we have Acts 25.11 where Paul speaks about the legitimacy of the death penalty for capital crime? And students would say, God's contradicting himself. No, not at all. God cannot contradict himself. What happens is he often gives us a general rule or a decree, but then says there are some circumstances where there are exceptions. And that's what we have in what we saw last week. God says, I hate divorce, and he really does hate it. But he says there are those particular circumstances where I might see a good reason, sexual sin, adultery, interrupting the relationship, I will allow it as an exceptional uh, circumstance in that case. That is the place where I mean the term that some take objection to, biblical divorce. That doesn't mean divorce is, is God's delight. Not at all. It means there are exceptional times when he sees it as being allowable. And that's a general principle in other areas of biblical ethics. Well, let's move on from that last time. Secondly, we come today to this other text, which is the other Bible exception on divorce, and it's from Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. Verse 10 once more states a general principle or decree of God. To the married, I give this charge. Oh, by the way, it's not me, it's the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, remain unmarried or be reconciled. And then he goes on to describe a particular circumstance. In verse 12, it, it unfolds that there were in the Corinthian church and certainly other early day churches in the time of the apostles, people who had married before Christianity ever came along. Maybe they were 10 years or 15 years into a marriage before they ever heard of the cross of Jesus or Christ exalted as Lord. And one of them, husband or wife, became a believer. Well, now that relationship was changed a lot because here's someone, husband or wife, now devoted to Jesus Christ. There's, you could say there's another person in that marriage. There's a third party in the marriage. And the believer is devoted to that third party, to Jesus, following his ethics, his commands, his principles. And, and the unbeliever probably feels a good deal of anger or resentment or frustration at that. And increasingly, this Christian faith becomes like a crack in the structure of the marriage. 
Paul's speaking to that. Obviously, the Corinthians had asked him about this. What if our unbelieving partners can't stand it anymore and leave us? Paul, what does God think of that? What should we do? And Paul said, here's what I say, and it's not me, it's the Lord saying it. If the unbeliever leaves, let him do it. A believing man or woman is not bound, not bound. And that means not bound to the marriage in such circumstances. Now, Paul had great respect for marriage. There's a discussion, a very low-key discussion among New Testament scholars as to whether Paul ever was married. He wasn't, we know, by his own testimony when he wrote the primary New Testament epistles. But the interesting thing is when he tells us of what he belonged to within Judaism and what his standing was, he had belonged to things where he would have had to be a married man to be qualified for that in earlier life. So maybe he was a widower. We don't know. We simply don't know. It really doesn't matter. But the point is Paul had great respect for the institution of marriage. And now he's saying, look, if something disrupts your marriage, you, believer, your primary motivation has to be seek reconciliation. Do everything you can to bring about peace and to maintain the relationship. And who knows, he said. He doesn't guarantee it, but he says, who knows? Your example in words and in gracious life might win your spouse. And he even says here in verse 14 that you have a greater influencing effect than you realize. There is a sanctifying effect. However, it might possibly irritate the unbeliever. At the same time, there's a positive sanctifying effect that that person stands in a holy relation to the Lord. Now, be careful that you understand what is said. Some people struggle with this passage because it says the unbelieving wife is made holy and the unbelieving husband is made holy. That does not mean salvation. That means a more fundamental meaning of holiness, which is set apart. The unbeliever is put in a position of direct advantage by being close to the witness of the gospel and a lived-out example of what the gospel is all about. It does not imply they are eternally saved, nor does it imply that children, as it is said here, are eternally saved by having a Christian parent. But they are set apart. I've said before when we talk about the covenant child in the Christian family, they dwell right on the threshold of the doorway of heaven. And it's often of just a very small step for a covenant child in a Christian home to step across. And they, they say to me things when they tell their testimony. They're almost embarrassed. They say, Pastor, I don't have any great event. Any, I didn't fall off a horse. You know, God didn't knock me down. I didn't have that dramatic testimony. I can't remember when I didn't believe in Christ. And when I hear that, I say, praise God for the Christian home. Praise God for the Christian home that our children are raised so close to the things of the Lord that it's a very gentle transition and they don't even remember exactly. There was no dramatic event. When they affirmed themselves, yes, Jesus is mine. We should want that. We should pray for that in our Christian homes. Well, the apostle here said or seems to admit this is a thing that Jesus did not directly speak about, and yet Paul thought he had the mind of the Lord here, and you shouldn't regard and say, well, 
let's see, last week you preached from Matthew, and, the, and Jesus was the spokesman, and now it's 1 Corinthians, and Paul, well, he's not as good. No, God was using Paul as his inspired vessel to give us his word, just as much as he used Jesus the Son here. So when we hear 1 Corinthians 7.15 say this special exemption, similar to but different than the one in Matthew, here's the words. If the unbeliever leaves, let him go. You are not bound. Now, it's always pointed out, and it needs to be pointed out, that in the Greek, if you dissect the language, let him go is in the imperative mood there. It, in other words, it's a command. It's not a suggestion. Paul is not saying, well, if you wanted to, you could let him go. He's saying, let him go. You do not have to hold on and try to continue and reconcile that relationship if the unbeliever leaves. And he adds, God has called us to peace. Probably you've already had years of animosity, of of arguments in the home over these things. And if it finally culminates, Paul is saying, we believe with the influence of the Spirit of God, if it culminates in the unbeliever finally departing, that is the Lord saying, you may regard that as the end of that relationship. Well, That sounds simple, and in some ways it is simple. But I want to point out to you that it's only one rather specific kind of leaving. It is definitely the leaving of the unbeliever abandoning the believer. And what happens is it gets messy in the applications that people try to make of this text. They try to make of it things that it should not apply to. They try to widen it. You see, it's, it's actually a rather narrow door that one unbeliever can go through. But people try to widen it to a point where an elephant could go through, and they, and they almost come out saying, well, any kind of desertion, any time you're deserted in the marriage, uh, I've heard people say, well, there are two grounds, two exceptional grounds for divorce, adultery and desertion. Well, that really isn't accurate. It's only desertion by an unbeliever. It's that specific. It's not broad of any type of desertion. And the question comes up then, what if the one deserting the relationship is a professing Christian? What do you do about that? Paul was only speaking about non-believers leaving. Well, when you try to think about that, you just have to say to yourself, if the believer's the one leaving, and Paul has said, don't you be that one, then that believer is acting the part of an unbeliever. He's professing to be something, but he's not living it. He's not showing it in his action. He's showing bad fruit of Christianity. It's not the fruit of the Spirit. It's rotten fruit, if you will. And maybe we ought to wonder, is that person actually not a believer? Are they really demonstrating that they're profession of faith is hollow or hypocritical. And we can't make a blanket judgment of that. You have to look at things by individual cases. But the other difficulty that comes about with 1 Corinthians 7.15 is the one that really stands us on our heads today and scratching our foreheads, and that is, what does leaving mean? People say, does it mean packing a suitcase, emptying your closet, 
throwing everything in your car and going out and renting an apartment so that you're no longer in the same household with your spouse, dividing your finances up and literally forsaking a united living situation. You know, it's, it's, it's easier when you're dealing with somebody who does literally leave. But we all know today that what we have are many situations where individuals have left, in quotes, while still residing under the same roof, right? Abuse. Marital abuse is an enormous subject today. And we're not talking just about the times when a drunken husband beats up the wife on Saturday night and spends his whole paycheck at the bar or something and comes home and is violent towards her or worse towards the children. Those are obvious and easier things. We're talking about all the the depths of abuse that's emotional and linguistic and attitudinal that goes on day in, day out. Our, quite a few of our elders, and I don't design these things. I was amazed, uh, okay, if John Calvin believed in coincidences, which he didn't, uh, one of the biggest ones would have been yesterday when half of our session attended a seminar on marital abuse. And I was sitting in the seminar thinking, well, I'm preaching on this. Can you help me out? Uh, I'm not sure the seminar helped me a whole lot, but it did have me thinking about a lot of things. Abuse is everywhere today, and it's, it's insidious, it's difficult, it, it lives... Here's an interesting thing our teacher the other day was saying. Believe it or not, one of the populations that has the most trouble with this are conservative, evangelical, Protestant men because they're trained to think of things that are often patriarchal in the biblical mold, and they're conservative, so they think in terms of black and white, and this is this, and that is that, and all kinds of abuse goes on in conservative churches. If you think this is something only done by non-believers, you are naive in the extreme. And how do we deal with this? When somebody appears to have left, in terms of the way he, usually a man, but it can be a woman, in terms of the way he treats his wife, treats his children, even creates danger for them. Now, I will say this. In pastoral wisdom, we certainly know, just common sense tells us, if there is safety threatened in a home, if a wife we has actual reason to fear for her safety. And we are convicted of that. We as elders of the church will stand for the need of a separation. Even if it does not go to divorce, if it is even a temporary physical separation for protection, we will do that. And we've demonstrated in past history that we stand with that. If, you, if any of you ever think you will be greeted by a pastor or elders in this church who won't believe you or won't listen to you, that you don't feel safe, try us. You will find out otherwise. We will do what we need to do for people to be safe. But that does not necessarily mean rushing to taking out an order for divorce. It can mean just a protective separation while we try to work things out. I can only tell you that elders and pastors need the wisdom of Solomon on these things. Every case is different. There are individual factors that that I can't say to you, well, this is what we'll do or that is what we'll do. 
we try to ask, is this individual still adhering to the covenant? Are they cleaving? Are they trying? Are they working with their honesty, with their integrity, with all of their spiritual passion at building the marriage? Or have they departed from it? And when you've got one person who really seems to have departed, or two who have at least halfway departed, you've got a tough situation. It takes every situation being prayed over and looked at with the best possible counsel. But let us not pretend here that 1 Corinthians 7 is giving wholesale permission to just leave, physically leave, and go out and divorce and say, there, I, I was doing that in obedience to 1 Corinthians 7. If you're saying that, and you're the one leaving, then you're labeling yourself the unbeliever, it would seem to me. Well, I haven't given you a lot of neat answers today, but I conclude similarly to last Sunday with this note, if you'll be patient with me, that divorce always has to be considered in the light of God's healing grace. God hates it. We should hate it. We should work against it. We should strive for reconciliation. But there are many times when that is not possible and many times where uh, best efforts of counseling and striving and working and prayer go for naught and the relationship cracks. If there's been real adultery and especially if it's aggravated, if it's repetitive, we believe Jesus Christ said that there is a permissible ground there for divorce to occur. Or if the believer leaves, as we've seen here, there's permissible ground. But even there, you, it's not that you must do it, although Paul said it pretty bluntly, let him go. I want to be sure all of you know that I didn't select these topics or dealing with the exceptions of divorce because I love preaching on this subject. But we came along to see this in tracing the Sermon on the Mount, and I felt we should take this second part to be an adjunct to last week. I want you to know, and I trust I have enough integrity with you that you know I didn't choose these subjects to strike out at some relationship or some home in this church. Unhappily, it's the kind of thing where if the shoe fits, some people will draw their conclusions and think he's trying to get me, he's trying to shame me. You're just as wrong as you could be if you think that. I want to tell you with all my heart Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. No matter how it occurs, no matter how badly mangled and wrong and rebellious the motives and the actions may have been that pushed a couple apart and brought them to actually divorce, whether it was far off from these biblical exceptions or right on target with them, the question at the end of the day is, Will you face your own faults and deeply repent before a holy God? Or are you still playing the blame game? It had to be him. It had to be her. This person got between us. Remember Jesus said in Matthew 19, 8, that Moses permitted you to divorce because, why? Your hearts were hard. Hard hearts are stubborn and angry and self-justifying and blaming. You know, the silliest things a hard heart could ever say, and I've heard this said, maybe you have too. 
someone who'd even been through a couple of divorces. And, and at the end of the day, all that this person learned was, well, I'm sure God just wants me to be happy. Oh, really? What Bible is that in? I'm sorry, your happiness is not God's greatest ideal. Your righteousness is. The glory of God is. And he desires to do a work in you that would humble you, not have you say, oh, well, I've got to be happy. I've got to be me. Not in my Bible. Bring me the edition that has that in, please. The question is, can you and I or anyone involved in this come to the foot of the cross of Jesus and lay down at the Savior's feet all the excuse-making, all the deception, all the posturing, and cry out, O God, be merciful to me, because I've been an active participant in a divorce that broke my marriage and it broke your heart. Can you say that? If that's been your background... One of the things that has always been a tremendous encouragement to me, and it should be to any broken person, is to look at the genealogies of Jesus. Some people say, genealogies? What, what a useless part of Scripture. No, I'm sorry. The genealogy of Jesus is wonderful. Do you know why? It included Rahab the harlot, who made her living as a prostitute and two adulterers named David and Bathsheba. What was God saying? There's grace. There's grace for everything. What is Christianity about if it's not forgiveness for the broken person who, like the mythological character Humpty Dumpty, who had his great fall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again? Maybe you cannot or could not Put your broken marriage back together. All right, what next? Is it too late? Is it too late to bow individually before the Lord and ask Him for His mercy, His forgiveness, for a new life? If anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone. Everything has become new. Let no one say, as I've looked at these two exceptions the last two Sundays here, that I was trying to liberalize divorce. Someone said, oh, you made it awfully liberal. Was I minimizing the horror of a broken marriage? I haven't had a broken marriage, but I've sure watched a lot of them. I've lived inside them as pastor and counselor, agonizing with people. Was I encouraging an easy approach to the out of divorce? I don't think so. You heard me wrong if that's what you heard. If you want to convict me these last two Sundays of some wrong theology in some way, accuse me of maximizing, not minimizing, maximizing the splendid power of the cross to grant broken people God's new beginning. Amen. Father, I pray there are people here that are in difficult straits about this. Different stages of a marriage that hasn't gone well or is already over, maybe over for years or even decades, and they're still wearing the scars. 
and they think of what I did wrong and what I'm ashamed of. Oh, God, we need a salvation that cleanses and makes new. And I thank you that that's exactly what Jesus died to give us. Praise his name. Amen.